All right, good morning, Trace. Happy Independence Day weekend to you. And uh, I have to say this before I get, get going. Yes, Rooted is coming up. I'm glad Aaron brought that up. Uh, August 30th is when we begin. Okay, so it's, it's, it's not that far away. Uh, certainly, we're already starting to plan for it. And if you could see the registrations that have occurred already, it's definitely not far away. We're about a third full. Um, and we have been filled to capacity a few weeks before, or at least a couple of weeks before Ruta begins each time. So if I was to give you a tip this year, plant your corn early. In other words, register early. Uh, and often, no, not often, but register early for Rooted, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you guys there. Uh, before I get into the message, let me pray. Lord God, thank you again for this blessing of being here. We do come to celebrate, and we have the freedom to do that in this country, and uh, we know that we're very fortunate. Uh, we're grateful to, to celebrate you, Jesus, to, to set our minds on you, to set our, our minds on things above. I pray, Father, that you would guide what I said here, that these would be your words and not mine, and then more importantly, that what people hear, that it would be your words to them, and not one word that you have to say to each individual in here would fall to the ground without being taken and, and applied to their lives. And Father, we give you thanks for these things now as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Independence Day weekend. So uh, Independence Day is uh, a special time for, for me. Um, my son and I were just talking about this this week that uh, July 4th and Thanksgiving are our favorite U.S. holidays. Uh, there's there's food involved. There's usually it's usually still nice enough weather and. In November, to go on a bike ride, certainly in July 4th, there's good enough weather to do that, and we get to spend time with family. Uh, when our kids, we had two kids, and uh, when, when our children were younger, uh, I guess it was about the time my daughter was in eighth grade, we promised to her that after Landry and, and our son had gone through eighth grade civics, we would take them to Washington, D.C., uh, feeling like they would have an appreciation for uh, what the U.S. government is and, and, and appreciation for what this nation is. And uh, we did that. So in 2010, we took them to Washington, D.C., and one of the highlights was actually to go to the National Archives and to see the Declaration of Independence. I mean, it, it was chilling in a sense to see the Declaration of Independence itself. Uh, you had to wait in line quite a while to get up to it, spend a minute or so looking at it, and go on. But uh, it, was, it was very memorable and uh, something that, um, that, that I'm glad that we did. It was very cold. It was nice to be inside uh, for, for that. But uh, we really enjoyed being able to do that. Now, the Declaration was a line in the sand that really emboldened the colonies to then be prepared for the war that was ahead of them. And they, even though they didn't quite have freedom at that point, they had declared it. They had not yet experienced it. And you could say that they already experienced some freedom. So if I could put that in quotes, they already experienced some freedom just by the fact that they were declaring it. But they had not yet, not yet experienced the fullness of that freedom. And it was going to take some time. There was a war and there were battles that were going to be ahead of them. You know, there are aspects to the life of the believer and the follower of Jesus that are true for us today. They're true in the here and now, but we have not yet fully realized them. And there are many, many examples throughout Scripture. One of those would be the kingdom of God. Jesus said that he, he inaugurated or he did inaugurate the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom of God is with you, it is near you, it is within you. But we know that it's not here in its fullness yet. Also, citizenship. Now, we have the blessing if we're a U.S. citizen or if you're not, you have the blessing and opportunity to become a U.S. citizen and take on that citizenship but Paul wrote in Philippians 3 about another citizenship that we have that we can experience now. We have it now, but not yet in fullness. So if we look at Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 19, it says, They, and I have to pause for a second because I'm, I'm 
picking it up here a little bit in the middle of the story, but it says they, and what he's referring to there in the previous verse are enemies of Christ, are enemies of the cross. So that, that's what he's re- referring to here, saying the enemies of the cross are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. So the enemies of the cross have their minds set only on earthly things. And by contrast, those who are followers of Jesus, they have a citizenship that is in heaven, and that is where their thoughts are. That is where their minds are. And, and truly, our place of citizenship really is in heaven. In fact, that's, if you look at that phrase in the Greek, it means the place of citizenship. And the place of our citizenship is in heaven. We have not fully realized it yet, and that's why in the last part of the verse there, it says he's eagerly waiting for Christ to return. We won't realize the fullness of that until Jesus returns. It is something that, that we can definitely be looking forward to, that we'll be able to take full advantage of that citizenship. This verse is, is one of many that references Jesus' return, that he's going to come back. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament, starting in Genesis, yes, in Genesis, there are prophecies not only about a Messiah, but there are, there are uh, promises about a king that's going to come and to reign. If you go from Genesis to Malachi, there are over 1,500 references to the second coming of Christ. You take that over into the New Testament, and there's almost 350 references that point to his return. In, fa- in fact, it appears in 23 of the 27 books. So 27 books in the New Testament, 23 of them you will find a reference to the second coming of Christ. And if you were to, to line up all the verses of the New Testament, just counting out the number of all the verses that are there, and were to read through them, one in every 30 verses is going to have a reference to it. And it may surprise you, and, and, and more than surprising, I, I thought that it's, it's very encouraging to me to know that when you look at the, the totality of the Bible and the prophecies that are there, the references that are there to the second coming and to the first coming, that those of the second coming outnumber the first coming by a factor of eight to one. And we can have confidence knowing that Jesus came and he fulfilled every one of those prophecies about his first coming. Therefore, we know that they're going to be fulfilled about his second coming. And there's eight times as many references to that. So we can see that God's word gives a lot of attention to the second coming. How often do we think about it? Are we eagerly waiting for it? How does this truth impact our our lives today? And and a question I'll have for you, how confident are you, how certain are you that Jesus is going to return? And and I don't ask that question as, as something that's going to induce a guilt trip, but rather something that's going to bring about some honest assessment. Do I think about it? Do I dwell on it? Does it impact my day to day? And how certain am I? These, again, are not questions to induce a a guilt trip. All of us have doubts at at times, certainly. We wouldn't be human if, if we didn't have doubts, but I do want you to know this. Listen to me. I do want you to know this. Having certainty in the return of our Savior, having absolute certainty in that has a direct impact on how we live today and a, and a positive impact on how we live Certainty in our not yet future hope brings us impact today. 
And perhaps a better way of saying that is that there is a present power in a future hope. My, my purpose today is really simple. I want to remind us to focus our attention on the absolute certainty of the return of Jesus. And in doing so, be able to, to, to experience the impact that it can have on our lives here and now. Because we need this. We need this certainty. We may not need it as badly today as we might need it a week from now in something that happens in our lives. But we need this certainty. And that's what I want to remind us of. So we're going to look at some evidence. We're going to look at, at references to the second coming. In fact, there's, there's only 840, uh, 1,845 of them. So if I start now, we should be done by next Sunday. No. Not going to read through all of them. It may feel like it at times. But we, what we want to do is to, to look at the certainty around the second coming of Jesus. And why, how, how is it that we can be certain? Really, I'm answering that question. How can we be certain? Why should we be certain? And I do want to caution us on this. We have to be careful about what we embrace as certain when it comes to eschatology or, or the study of end-time events. We can get off track if we put certainty where God's word and God has not put certainty, where he has not been certain and clear. But on the opposite side of that, there is great power in understanding what the certainty is. So let's look at some of those things. Let's look at how and why we can be certain. The first, the first way that we can be certain is that God the Father has ordained it. Our Father has ordained the fact that Jesus is going to return. I just gave you a lot of facts and figures about the promise of the second coming in the Old Testament. And Malachi is an old, was an Old Testament prophet. In fact, he, you could say he was the final prophet, and it's his Prophet, his book is actually in the right place in the Old Testament, right at the end. He prophesied about John the Baptist coming and preparing the way for Jesus. And he also prophesied about Jesus, both his first and his, his second coming. But from that time frame, when God spoke through Malachi until God speaks again, at least biblically, there's a space of 400 years of silence. 400 years of, of no word from God or direction, but just these last prophecies from Malachi. In Luke chapter one, we, we read that Gabriel then comes, God sends the angel Gabriel and tells Zechariah, hey, and he was actually in the temple, he was ministering in the temple, he was in the Holy of Holies as, as a priest, and he, and he was told that he was going to have a son, and that that son was going to prepare the way for the Lord, and that he was gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit. That in itself would be unique. Someone filled with the Holy, born being filled with the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't you like to raise that child? Okay. But he was going to be born. And, and I find it ironic that right after that, because there was some doubt on the part of Zechariah that God silenced him, he was not able to speak about it. So the, the silence really continued, even though Gabriel came and told Zechariah that here's what's going to happen, but you're not going to be able to tell anyone. And then just six months later, we see God send Gabriel to Mary. And we have that here in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33. It says, but, angel, but, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So we've got a little bit of Christmas in July going here. I know we spend time on this in December in, in an Advent season. 
but it's important to look at it here today because this is, this is God ordaining the fact that, that Jesus is going to come again. Yet it, his reign started when he came and he did come as a king, but he's going to return to reign. And that reign is not going to end. He is going to, to come to reign and, and his kingdom started then. And it's important to know that even though his kingdom started then, it wasn't at that time that the kingdom of darkness was made to leave and it still hasn't left. But there will be a time that comes when the kingdom of darkness will be made to leave. So if we fast forward from this time, so Mary's been told that she's going to to have Jesus. He's going to reign forever. We fast forward past the resurrection. Okay, so Jesus is lived his life, he's had his ministry, he suffered, he's died, he was buried, he was raised three days later. And he's now with his disciples, with those that would be his apostles, those that were closest to him, the 11. And he's having a conversation with the apostles about the Father's authority regarding the kingdom of God and regarding his second coming. And he'd been with the disciples for 40 days. 40 days being with them in and out of their lives after he was resurrected. And in Acts 1-4, it says that he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God, which is his go-to sermon. That was his go-to sermon. And so he's telling them about that. And we pick it up in in verse 6 of Acts 1. It says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. It's the Father who sets the times and the dates. It's the Father that has the authority to do that. He's ordained it, and he has control over the schedule and the timing. The apostles didn't know what the timing was. Obviously, they were asking the question. In fact, they might have been discouraged or bewildered by the answer that they received. After all, he, he said he was gonna go away for a little time, and he's already done that. He was away for three days, he's resurrected, he's in and out of their lives. Is, is that long enough? Are you now going to establish your kingdom? So that they could have been bewildered by that. But God then gives them some certainty. He gives the apostles some certainty by sending some messengers. In verse nine, it said, after he had said this, He was taken up before their eyes. This is Jesus, of course. He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. And as I was reading through this several times this week, I couldn't help but get a little bit of chuckle. I'm glad this wasn't present day because we would have had our heads down on our phones instead of looking intently up. Or if we were looking up, we probably would have been (laughs) trying to catch it, okay? But here here we are, it says, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go to heaven. They weren't given a date, they weren't given a time, they they weren't given a season. What they were given was what they needed, that was certainty that Jesus was going to return. And it, the rest of the New Testament shows that they believed it. They died, they died for it. They died for their faith. But they believed it, they taught it. And what they taught, they lived out. And what they were teaching was that we should be looking forward to it. Our minds should be on this. And that we should be eagerly waiting for Jesus' return. Not just kind of thinking about it, but 
actually being eager for that time. So we can see that God has ordained the fact that, that Jesus is going to return again. God the Father has. But there's a, another way that we can have certainty. And that's the fact that Jesus has promised it. Jesus promised that he would come again. And he spoke frequently about the kingdom of God and, and the kingdom of heaven. I mentioned earlier it was his go-to sermon. He, he also made over 20 direct references to his second coming, that he was going to come back. And in John 13, it says that Jesus, uh, John, John records for us that uh, Jesus said and was thinking that he knew that his time on earth has, was finished and that he was going to return to the Father after serving them by washing their feet. So he set an example for them of service and he washed their feet and he told them that I'm only gonna be with you a little while longer and then I'm gonna go away. And they very easily could have been discouraged by this. Not only then, not only the fact that he was going to be leaving and be in the grave for three days and then later he's gonna be gone, later in their lives even, being able to think back to this promise that we read in John 14. Verses one through three. After telling them he's only gonna be with them a little while longer, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I, if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, there it is again, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I, am at, where I am. It's like Jesus is saying, you can trust me on this one. He says, you believe in God, you can believe also in me. He's equating himself with God with that same kind of belief. We can believe in his promise, believe in, and trust in me. And I'm so thankful that we have this account from John in, in recording it saying, you know, we, we can trust Jesus for this, we can trust his promise. Many years later, probably even 60 years later, this same apostle John is on an island. He's been exiled to Patmos for the fact that he was a follower of Christ and he was preaching the word. And he's there as an old man. Jesus hasn't come yet. And he has some incredible visions. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ that he's given and that's what he records and what we have now is, is the, book, the book of Revelation. And can you imagine all the things that John saw? I mean, it's, I love the first five chapters of Revelation, especially with all the worship that's there and the pictures of Christ. And then when you get to the end with Revelation 21 and 22, he's talking about the new Jerusalem and a world that's not gonna have any more sorrow, crying, pain, or death. And that's what John is hearing. And can you imagine how enthused he must have been at, at hearing this and amazed at seeing these things and, and being renewed in that promise? But what final words did Jesus leave for John in closing out the Bible, in closing out this revelation? He repeats it three times. In John, I'm sorry, in Revelation 22, 7, 12, and 20. I am coming soon. Behold, I'm coming soon. John, I'm coming soon. He wanted him to know that he was coming back. You're, you're seeing a vision of this. Just know that I'm, I'm coming soon. And repetition, I heard this in one of my professors in college, repetition is the best form of emphasis. And Jesus is repeating this. He's emphasizing that he was going to come back. It's in your Bible in red letters. Go read it. There's no denying that Jesus promised it. 
There's no denying that he predicted it. But can we trust him? After all, he did say he was coming soon. I don't know about you, but it it's, doesn't seem like it's all that soon. He said he was going to come soon, but you know, I take heart in this. When Jesus was here, he, he predicted a lot of things. He predicted the fact that he was going to die, and three days later, he was going to uh, be raised from the dead, and he pulled it off. He, he was raised. Therefore, we can have confidence that he is going to come again. Anyone that can predict their own death and resurrection, I'm going with him. Not everyone believed. In fact, just less than 30 years after Jesus had been resurrected, there were a lot, there were a lot of people that didn't, didn't believe. In fact, Peter wrote a book. The apostle Peter wrote a book, the second book, his second letter, Second Peter. And one of the purposes behind that letter was to combat a false narrative about the fact that people were saying Jesus is not going to come back. We can find that in 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 3. It says, above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? And I like the punctuation we have today. It's, where is this, quotes, coming he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So the scoffers acknowledged that there was a promise. They had no problem saying that. They realized that they couldn't disprove that there was a promise. There were people still there at the time that could have heard the promise and could say, yes, Jesus said he was coming back. But their human reasoning-based argument was that the promise was so long delayed that it was safe to assume that it was never going to happen. And Peter gives his readers some perspective by reminding them of God's relationship to time. If you remember, Jesus gave him a perspective on time. It's God's authority. And so Peter writes to the, to the church and he says, but do, in, in, in verse eight it says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So Peter references Psalm 90, 90 in verse 4 here, and he's saying that God has authority. He, he has control of this. Um, and I've got a question for you. Have you ever thought that God is slow in keeping his promise? I have, and I do, especially when I see suffering or maybe something going on in my life. I mean, there's so many things. I'm a newspaper reader. I read the paper daily. It's a, it's, a, it's a way to pray. You see all the things that are going on in the world, and it makes you hurt. It makes you yearn for Jesus to return. So have you ever thought that he's slow in keeping his promise? What, what descriptive word do we give to somebody that's slow to keep their promise? Procrastination, okay? I just made a lot of guys think about that to-do list at home that you haven't gotten to. Okay, the procrastination. In, in my household growing up, you know what the word was? Dilly-dallying. No dilly-dallying. I, I, and, and I spent nine years in, in Louisiana schools, 
And uh, maybe they didn't teach vocabulary all that well. I didn't even know that was a real word for a long time. I just thought, hey, this is something the Bobos do. It's dilly-dallying or we're not supposed to do. My dad had a list often, usually on weekends and certainly every day in the summer. You come downstairs and it said, these are the things that need to be done today. And you know in the back of your mind, you better not dilly-dally. Okay? God is not procrastinating. He's not dilly-dallying. He's not vacillating. He's not indecisive. He's not deferring. I suffer from sometimes analysis paralysis. God is not suffering from analysis paralysis. He is not, this is not slowness on his part at all. It is an intentional act of mercy. It's an intentional act of his grace. It's productive for us to view this time as opportunity and not as a delay. We have an opportunity to tell people about this good news. In our view, a lot of time has passed, but God sees this time as an opportunity for anyone and everyone to be saved. That's what it said there in, in 2 Peter. It said, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone. That's very personal. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So it's, it's for anyone and everyone. And if I may just take a moment here, take a little bit of a side. That, that word that's there, that says he wants everyone to come to repentance. Sometimes repentance, that word gets a bad rap because we often tie rebuke to it. But when Jesus had been baptized, he went out into the wilderness, he was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was tempted by the enemy, he overcame that. His first sermon in Matthew 4 was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And that word repent is an invitation. It's turn around and come this way. It's, it's not a rebuke, it's, it's an invitation. Come join me because the kingdom of heaven is near. So we can have certainty because Jesus promised it. And lastly, we can have certainty because the Holy Spirit guarantees it. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22, it says, It is God who enables us along with you to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised to us. God has given us irrevocable, irrevocable promises and the deposit, the first installment of the Holy Spirit guarantees those promises. And one of those is the fact that Jesus is coming back. So let me transition a bit here and, and start to, to land this plane, start to wrap this up before we get into the response time. If we believe that Jesus is coming to reign if we're certain about that, it will affect our moment-to-moment and day-to-day decisions. In fact, we will want his reign to increase in us on a daily basis, gradually, over time, more and more. And Jesus himself did not hesitate to point his listeners, to point the people that were following him, to point his disciples, to, to point them to the future as a means of perspective and motivation. There's nothing wrong with motivation. He, he, he did that in his parables. A lot of them were about the kingdom of God and he was giving them perspective and he was giving them motivation. Jesus himself had a forward-looking outlook on life. In Hebrews 12, it says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, disregarding the shame. He became sin for us and yet he was willing to disregard all that because of what he knew it was going to accomplish. So, let me give you three quick examples of how this certain hope impacts us here and now. Number one is, is stewardship. 
we are all given things to steward. We, we have a certain amount of time, though we don't know exactly how much time we have here. Within that time, there's opportunities that we're to steward. We have gifts and talents and abilities that, that we steward. We have relationships. We also have resources. Some of those resources are financial in nature, and we can choose to invest them in the here and now or into the future. And if I could just summarize some of those lessons that Jesus taught in the parables about the kingdom of God, and there are a bunch of them. It's the fact that the kingdom of God that Jesus will establish when he returns is worth selling out for. It is worth selling out for. There's nothing in this world worth doing that, that, uh, that we'd want to compromise anything for in the future because it is absolutely worth selling out for. Nothing compares to the value was another lesson. And also, there's a lesson about those who are faithful with little can be trusted with much. And in another place, it says, those that can be trusted with what you have here will be trusted with true riches. Something that I pray in regard to this, in regard to stewardship on occasion, is to say, Lord, may what will be most important on that day be most important to me today. A second thing is, it gives us perspective is in, in regard to Jesus coming, it gives us perspective of suffering. And there's all types of suffering and it's both global and personal. We know about the global suffering and I, I know that that hurts all of us. When we see and hear things, whether that's human trafficking and some of the tragedies that even happened this week and kids that go to school and don't come home, wars that are going on and it, it, too many to list. There's global suffering, there's personal suffering, there's things that are going on in your life and maybe about your health about relationships, things that you would be struggling with, and, and there's, there's suffering there. Paul set an example for us in this, and in 2 Corinthians, he, he records a number of things that he had been through. It says that he was beaten with 39 lashes five times. Three times he was beaten with rods. Says that he was stoned once. That means he was executed. He, he, it was meant for him to die by executing him with stones, and yet he didn't die. He was shipwrecked three times. I'm never going on a cruise with Paul. He said he went without food, he was cold, and he was naked. He would be the ultimate survivor contestant, right? He's prepared for it. But in Romans 8, in spite of all these things, in Romans 8, he says, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. It can't even compare. It was the later that gave him perspective in the present. And it can give us perspective too in our suffering. And then lastly, sanctification. And that's a, a fancy churchy word. It means growing. Growing to become more like Jesus. And what Jesus taught about that in his parables, there are several that are about growing. First of all, it starts with humility, having the humility of a child. It talks about a childlike faith. There's examples of a mustard seed, which is a really small seed that grows into a tree. There's the example of yeast in a batch of dough that spreads throughout the dough. And there's one that's often overlooked because only Mark records it, and it's about a growing seed. It's a parable of a growing seed, and that seed is planted by a farmer and that seed, not knowing how it happens, when it's planted in the ground and it's watered and it's nurtured, it, it sprouts. And after it sprouts, it grows into a plant. And after it's a plant, it, it begins to bear fruit and that fruit is eventually harvested. And it happens slowly over time and almost imperceptible at times. 
And the same is true of us. So those are the things that, that Jesus was teaching us in his parables about sanctification and growing. And the kingdom of God starts within us now, and it grows day by day. And it's about transformation and not performance, that we're gradually transformed. Let me read one last verse to you here in Titus chapter 2. It says, for the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people, and we are instructed to turn from godliness, from, I'm sorry, to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. Notice this. We do that while we look forward to the hope of that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. That's what helps us through suffering. That's what gives us perspective and, and helps us to want to grow and, and being more like Jesus. So Jesus' reign grows in us and, and we can be certain and more than certain we can be eager for the return of Christ because God the Father has ordained it. Jesus promised it and the Holy Spirit guarantees it. And because of that, we can have an absolute, we can have absolute certainty and because of that certainty, we can experience a present power and a future hope. Let me close this in prayer. Great God, thank you so much for the blessing of being here. Thank you for these promises. Thank you for the hope that it gives us. We thank you that it is certain. There's a lot of uncertain things that we don't get right. We foul up at times maybe in scripture, but this is something that we can be absolutely certain about and we're thankful for that. We pray that you would be glorified in us. Think of this opportunity to, to celebrate today. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.